the book of Leviticus. It's the third book of the Bible, and it's set right after the exodus of the Israelites from their slavery, when God brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai and invited Israel into a covenant relationship. Now, they had quickly rebelled and broke that covenant, and God had wanted for his glorious presence to come and live right in the midst of Israel in the form of this tabernacle. But Israel's sin has damaged the relationship. So, at the end of the previous book, Exodus, Moses, as Israel's representative, could not even enter God's presence in the tent. The book of Leviticus opens by reminding us of this fundamental problem. It says, the Lord called to Moses from the tent. So the question is, how can Israel, in their sin and selfishness, be reconciled to this holy God? That's what this book is all about, how God is graciously providing a way for sinful, corrupt people to live in his holy presence. Now, let's pause for a second and explore this really important idea that God is holy. It's fundamental to understanding this book. The word holy means simply to be set apart or unique. And in the Bible, God is set apart from all other things because of his unique role as the creator of all, as the author of life itself. And so if God is holy, then the space around God is also holy. It's full of his goodness and his life and purity and justice. So if Israel, who is unjust and sinful, wants to live in God's holy presence, they too need to become holy. Their sin has to be dealt with. Thus, the book of Leviticus. Now, the book has a really amazing symmetrical design. It explores the three main ways that God helps Israel to live in his presence. The outer sections are descriptions of the rituals Israel was to practice in God's holy presence. The next inner sections focus on the role of Israel's priests as mediators between God and Israel. And inside of that are two matching sections that focus on Israel's purity. And then right here at the center of the book, there's a key ritual, the Day of Atonement, that brings the whole book together. The book concludes with a short section where Moses calls on Israel to be faithful to this covenant. Let's dive into the book. The first section explores the five main types of ritual sacrifices that Israel was to perform. Two of these were ways that an Israelite could say thank you to God by offering back to God these symbolic tokens of what God has first given them. Three other sacrifices were different ways of saying sorry to God. So here an Israelite would offer up the lifeblood of an animal while confessing that their sin has created more evil and death in God's good world. But instead of destroying this person, God, of course, wants to forgive them. And so this animal symbolically dies in their place and atones, which means it covers for their sin. And so through these rituals, the Israelites were constantly being reminded of God's grace, but also of his justice and of the seriousness of their evil and its consequences. The second set of rituals lays out the seven annual feasts of Israel. And each of these retold a different part of the story about how God redeemed them from slavery in Egypt and brought them through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And by celebrating these feasts regularly, Israel would remember who they were and who God was to them. Now, the sections about Israel's priests, you have Aaron and his sons first ordained to enter into God's presence on behalf of Israel. And then in this matching section, we find the qualifications for being a priest. The priests were called to the highest level of moral integrity and ritual holiness because they represented the people before God, but then also represented God to the people. 
Now, we find out why the priest's holiness matters so much back here in this first section. Right after the family of Aaron was ordained, two of his sons waltz right into God's presence and flagrantly violate the rules. And so they are consumed by God's holiness on the spot. It's a haunting reminder of the paradox of living in God's holy presence because it's pure goodness, but it becomes dangerous to those who rebel and insult God's holiness. And so it's important that Israel's priests become holy and also that all of the people of Israel become holy, which is what the next intersections are all about. Chapters 11 through 15 are about the ritual purity required of all the Israelites, and chapters 18 through 20 are about the moral purity of the people. Here's what's underneath all of this purity and impurity language. Because God is holy and he's set apart, the Israelites need to be in a state of holiness themselves when they enter into his presence. This was called being clean or pure. God's presence was off limits to anybody who was not in a holy state, and this was called being unclean or impure. Now, an Israelite could become impure in just a few ways, by contact with reproductive body fluids, by having a skin disease, by touching mold or fungus, or by touching a dead body. Now, for the Israelites, all of these were associated with mortality, with the loss of life, which gets us to the core symbol of all these ideas. You become impure when you're contaminated by touching death so to speak. And death is the opposite of God's holiness because God's essence is life. Now, this is really key. Simply being impure was not sinful or wrong. Touching these kinds of things was a normal part of everyday life. And impurity was a temporary state. It just lasted a week or two and then it's over. What was wrong or sinful was to waltz into God's presence carrying these symbols of death and impurity on my body. Don't do that. Now, the last way of becoming impure was by eating certain animals. And the kosher food laws are found right here in this section. Now, there have been lots of theories about why certain animals were considered impure and off limits to promote hygiene or to avoid cultural taboos. The text just isn't explicit. But the basic point of all of these chapters is really clear. Altogether, these work as an elaborate set of cultural symbols that reminds Israel that God's holiness was to affect all areas of their lives. This corresponding section over here is about Israel's moral purity. The Israelites were called to live differently than the Canaanites. They were to care for the poor instead of overlooking them. They were to have a high level of sexual integrity, and they were to promote justice throughout their entire land. Now, here at the center of the book, we find a long description of one of Israel's annual feasts, the Day of Atonement. Odds are that not every Israelite's sin and rebellion would be covered through the individual sacrifices. And so once a year, the high priest would take two goats. One of these would become a purification offering and atone for the sins of the people. And the other was called the scapegoat. The priest would confess the sins of Israel and symbolically place them on this goat. And then it would be cast out into the wilderness. Again, this is a very powerful image of God's desire to remove sin and its consequences from his people so that God can live with them in peace. The book concludes with Moses calling Israel to be faithful to all of the terms of the covenant. And he describes the blessings of peace and abundance that will result if Israel obeys all of these laws. He also warns them that if they're unfaithful and dishonor God's holiness, it will result in disaster and ultimately 
exile from the land promised Abraham. Now, if you want to see how Leviticus fits into the big storyline, it's helpful to look at the first sentence of the next book of the Bible, Numbers. It begins, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent. So we can see that Moses is now able to enter God's presence on behalf of Israel. The book of Leviticus, it worked. So despite Israel's failure, God has provided a way for their sin to be covered so that God can live with sinful people in peace. And that's what the book of Leviticus is all about. Don't you wish when you were reading through Leviticus it was all that simple? Well, how's your Bible reading going? Are you staying caught up? I know some of, I like that, thumbs up even. So I, you know, I, I know some of it's a bit of a slog and, and for sure uh, the, the book of Leviticus can be a little bit tough. So last week we started Leviticus and today is part two. Uh, and then next week we will be on to the book of Numbers. So Leviticus uh, uh, chapter 23, uh, beginning with verse nine, we're on page 219. If you've got your Bibles this morning, I want to encourage you to be bringing these. Um, that way you can be taking notes, writing in it, highlighting all that good stuff. Last week, uh, if you tuned in online or you were here, you know we talked about holiness. We talked about blood and this whole idea of atonement, uh, this idea of covering, this idea for you insurance industry people, the payout, right? That's what it is. It's the atonement. It's, it's that bridge uh, between a holy God and a sinful people. And what kind of underlies all that idea, and we've, you've probably read about it so much, your eyes probably have just kind of glossed over it. It's just all this blood, all these sacrifices uh, that have been brought to the tabernacle. And it's really all about these offerings, these things that are brought to God to uh, meet God in the tabernacle. Burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, purification offerings, guilt offerings, and you're like, offerings and offerings and offerings, right? And it just goes on and on and on. In the book of Leviticus, the word offering shows up 183 times. Offerings that were brought to the tabernacle. So, and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I know it shows up a lot, right? You're, you're reading it, you're following along. And one of the interesting thing about uh, all these offerings, and Jeff read it at the top of the service from the book of Hebrews, we are told that Jesus Christ, you know, all the book of Leviticus, every book in the Old Testament uh, is pointing to Jesus, right? And so all these offerings point to Jesus. They point to his suffering, his sacrifice on the cross. And what the book of Hebrews tells us, so that we no longer need to bring these offerings, these uh, burnt offerings, these uh, grain offerings, the peace offerings, all that stuff, because Jesus has paid it once and for all. And at the same time, uh, offerings, this whole idea of offerings continues through the Old Testament and it continues to keep going in the New Testament. And so as I was cruising at 35,000 feet uh, through the book of Leviticus, uh, the Lord just impressed upon me this idea of offerings. And what do offerings mean for us today? So we're going to dive down and kind of go into some of the details of offerings. And, and 
and what does it all mean for us today? Uh, most specifically, really looking at this idea of first fruits. And that's why uh, in our Bibles it says the festival of the first fruits. And it's just going to be some of the details that we have been reading and we're going to continue to read about uh, in these offerings. So let's pray uh, if you are uh, on page 219. Lord, we thank you uh, that you are a God uh, who has paid it all. Uh, that God, that you brought yourself uh, as an atonement, as a payout, so that we no longer uh, need to bring those kind of offerings. And yet, God, at the same time, we bring to you our very lives as well as an offering. The ways, God, in which you have called us uh, to meet with you, continue to meet with you, and the ways, God, in which you call us uh, to uh, be your light and presence out in the world. So Lord, as we uh, reflect on Leviticus this morning again, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I thought I would uh, begin this morning, uh, before we jump into the book of Leviticus, with an apology, um, because as I was preparing uh, the sermon this morning, uh, thinking really about this idea of offerings, I thought, gosh, when's the last time I talked about money in the congregation? And I looked at 2023, and I saw that I spoke, uh, preached exactly zero times uh, on money. In 2022, I looked back at my notes, I preached exactly zero sermons uh, on money in 2022. And uh, I'm like, oh my goodness. Uh, the last time I preached a sermon on money was May 9th, uh, 2021. I mean, that was a long time ago. I mean, that's more than, you know, a hundred and some sermons ago. And so I was feeling badly about that. And I thought, well, maybe I preached more the year before. 2020, I preached one sermon. Uh, 2019, I preached one sermon. The last time I preached a sermon on money, you have to go all the way back to 2018. I preached a four-part uh, sermon, sermon series on money. So there you have it, folks. Uh, I have been a terrible pastor uh, pr pr and preacher uh, talking with you all about money. Uh, and, you know, just for fun, uh, because I really was kicking myself this week, I've preached about 2% of all my sermons uh, here at Faith Lutheran Church on money. And uh, I've, I've let you down. Uh, because the Bible talks a lot about money. In fact, the Bible references money uh, over 2,000 times, 2,162 times. The Bible actually talks more about money uh, than prayer and faith. Twice as much, and we could talk about love, God, you know, Scripture talks more about money than it does even love. And so over and over and over, um, Scripture is filled with uh, these teachings about money. And you're like, well, yeah, I'm more of a New Testament person, right? I don't really, you know, I, I prefer to leave the Old Testament where it is. Well, then you would hate the teachings of Jesus, because Jesus uh, spent about 30% of all of his teachings, 30% talking about money, and I've talked about money 2%. So I got a long way to go, and uh, I am committed to doing a better job and talking more about money here at Faith Lutheran Church. So there you have it. Uh, there's my apology, and there's my word to you all. Jesus, in fact, talked more about money than he did heaven and hell and even love. 
And why did Jesus talk so much about money? Well, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount that, again, Jeff uh, referenced this morning, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7-ish, right in the very middle, Jesus says uh, to us as he's preaching this sermon, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus knew that there is a close connection between what's going on in our heart and our money. What money really does is it reveals about who we are uh, in a very uh, tangible way. The first thing I want to say before we jump into the text and we talk a little bit about offerings or money is number one, the church does not need your money. The church doesn't need your money. So, uh, you know, this congregation has been going six and a half years. We've gone through six full budget cycles. Every year, this congregation has been well um, brought in, well, you all have brought in well more than we've spent. So every year, we have run a, a, a budget in, in the surplus every single year in the life of this church, including 2023, last year. If you were at the annual meeting in January 2023, you might remember we passed a deficit budget of about 10% because of the sabbatical, um, and we just knew that we were going to spend more money than we took in. Guess what? At the end of 2023, we actually finished the budget year still in the black. We finished it still in the positive. And so we haven't experienced a negative budget. So you got to know, I'm not sharing with you this morning um, that the church needs your money. Don't hear that. Just put that on the shelf, because I know sometimes people show up to church and they're like, oh, the church just wants my money. The church is always talking about our money. I'm just going to lay it out there. The church does not need your money. You are a generous congregation. This congregation just gives. In fact, when, when, when the council sits down in the fall and starts to plan out and prepare the budget, we don't wait for the pledges to come in and say, okay, this is how much money we got. Now let's spend it. These are two very separate activities. We just invite all of us to pledge in the fall, um, and then we, we build this budget uh, in, a, in a separate conversation even. So these things are not tied together uh, at all. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. Um, the reason why we talk about money in the life of the church, it's for you. We don't want something from you. We want something for you. And the reason why it's so important that we as a congregation and in Scripture and Jesus talks about money is it's not about, you know, getting something from you, but it's something for you. Because when you understand biblical concepts and biblical ideas of money, you, you first and foremost are blessed. When you are practicing and uh, leveraging money in the ways in which scripture invites us to leverage scripture, we experience a life of peace. We experience a life of joy. We experience a life of freedom. I mean, this is why we talk about these things. And so if you want peace, joy, and freedom in your life, I just want to invite you to lean in a little bit this morning. And I thought, since I haven't talked about money in a long, long time in the life of the church, we're gonna, um, I'm going to give you a really easy topic as it relates to money. We're going to talk about something really, really easy, probably the easiest topic as it relates to money uh, and this theme that comes out of Scripture. And the idea, of course, is first fruits. 
And so we're not going to talk about how much money um, you, you might want to give uh, in minist to ministry, but it's, it's really about this idea of first fruits, this idea of, again, coming back to this idea of atonement uh, and the offerings. It's, it's how you might, when, it's when you might give your uh, resources. And of course, the idea is first fruits, giving it first before anything else. And that's what we're going to kind of look at today. So God's story, it begins with this covenant relationship with Abraham. And then it moves on to this rescue story, God rescuing the Israelites out of Egypt. And after, we've talked about this several weeks in a row, it's really, really important that we get the, the order correct. First God rescues, then God gives the rules, the Ten Commandments. We've talked about that time and time again. We don't follow the Ten Commandments so that we're earning favor with God. God has already rescued the people. And he says, this is how I want you to live, and I want to encourage you. And then last week, we talked a little bit about this whole idea of worship uh, in Leviticus and meeting in the tabernacle and this idea of falling well. We're all, we're all going to fall. We all do fall. We all sin. And so how in the midst of our sin can we bind up that relationship, reconnect with God? We talked about this idea of atonement, this covering, this idea of payout, and lots and lots of animals uh, and different offerings that are, are um, brought to the tabernacle. And so we're going to look at the offerings. So here we go. Um, Leviticus 23, beginning uh, with verse 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. When you enter the land I'm giving you, now he's talking about the promised land, they're not there yet, and you, uh, and you harvest its first crops, bring the priest a bundle of grain from the first cutting of your grain harvest. On the day of, after the Sabbath, the priest will lift it up before the Lord so it may be accepted on your behalf. On that same day, you must sacrifice a one-year-old male lamb with no defects as a burnt offering to the Lord. With it, you must present a grain offering consisting of four quarts of choice flour, moistened with olive oil. It will be a special gift, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You must also offer one quart of wine as a liquid offering. Do not eat any bread or roasted grain or fresh kernels on that day until you bring this offering to your God. This is a permanent law for you, and it must be observed from generation to generation wherever you might live. So in these six verses that I read, and, and again, we've, this is just you know a small sampling, but we've read some version of this over and over and over, this idea of first fruits. Um, but even before we look at the first fruits, what really jumped out at me as I was reading through these six verses were the verbs that were used, these ideas of what do we do with the offerings. And the language um, that God is using uh, through Moses are present the offerings, bring the offerings, return the offerings, and offer a sacrifice. I thought it's really interesting, this, these, this language of what do they do with the offerings, because there is a word missing here, that when we think about offering, it's not listed here. And that's give. 
Nowhere does it say anywhere that we should give an offering to God or the Israelites should give an offering to God in the tabernacle. Why is that? Because we can't give God anything, right? God created everything. Everything that we have is a gift from God. He owns it all. In fact, Psalm 50 tells us this way. For every animal of the forest is mine, God is saying, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. It all belongs to God. And so everything, as I've said time and time again, what, where it's really helpful for us, whatever passage of Scripture we're reading, to go back to Genesis 1, 1, uh, 1 through 3. Man, those three, first three chapters of Genesis, they explain so much. And of course, in the beginning, God created everything. And then we look forward whatever passage because all of Scripture points to Jesus. It all points back to God in the creation and the fall, and it all points forward to Jesus on the cross and the resurrection. But in this passage, it's a great reminder, I think, for us that God owns it all. We cannot give God anything. And I thought what might be kind of a fun illustration uh, 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 about this is you want to go on a road trip. You want to go on a road trip and you know that I drive a car that gets really good gas mileage, right? And so you say to me, hey, Brian, I want to visit all the national parks around the United States. Can I borrow your Prius? And I'd be like, sure, you can borrow my Prius. And so I hand you my keys and you go off on this road trip. Uh, a couple months later, uh, you show back up. Uh, my odometer shows an additional 16,847 miles. You show back up and you look at me and say, man, that was a great road trip. Thank you so much. By the way, I've got a gift for you. And I'm like, really? Yeah, I got a gift for you. I washed and vacuumed your car. Here you go. And I'm like, wait a second. That's my car. You can't give me my car. You can return my car. You can give me back my car. Yeah, but no, this is a gift. I want to give you your car, Brian. And I changed the oil for you. I'm like, wait a second. I mean, that's absurd. You're not giving my, me my car. The, the title is in my name. It's my car. You're not giving me my car. You're returning my car back to me. But so often, isn't it interesting that when it comes to money, we think that it's ours. And what God tells us in his word over and over and over, everything belongs to God. All we can do is return it back to him. All we can do is bring it to him. All we can do is bring that small portion back to him. We don't give God anything, and we certainly don't give God our offering or our money. Now, the interesting thing in this text is the word give does show up twice. Do you see this in verse 10? Give the following instructions. When you enter the land, I am giving you. So who's the one doing the giving? God is. God is giving the instructions to the people. God is going to give the people the land. God is always the one who does the giving. We are the ones who are on the receiving side of things. 
God is the giver, we are the receivers. And we see this over and over throughout Scripture. Okay, the second idea um, that in these six verses that I really kind of want to lean into this morning, as I've already mentioned, it, it's this whole idea of bringing our first and our best. It's this idea of first fruits. In an agrarian society... What people would do, of course, is they would plant crops. And when it was time for the harvest, they would go out, they would start to harvest the crops, and the very first, you know, they would grab a, 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 a bunch of um, stalks of, of grain, I suppose, cut them, and then they would bring them into the temple. The very first parts of the harvest were brought into uh, the tabernacle or the temple as a presentation to the Lord. Same with the animals, same with the livestock. The very first and the very best. And so if you had had a, a goat that was born first, that goat uh, would be brought to the tabernacle as a first fruit, as a way of saying, God, you have given me everything. I'm returning to you an offering. But if that goat, after it was born, it, it, it had some kind of blemish, some kind of deformity. Remember, it says in here over and over and over, and I know you're reading this, without defect, right? Without defect. That if there's something wrong with that animal or there's some disease maybe on the wheat that you're bringing in or it's, it doesn't really look good, you, you cast that aside. You wait until you get something really, really good, the, the very, very best. And this is what the people were to bring back to, what they were to return to God, their first and their very best. Over and over throughout Scripture, we read this idea of first fruits, that God is not really interested in our leftovers. He's not even interested in second place or ever uh, what's next best, but it really is all about first fruits. And so the reason why we continue to be invited to lean into this idea of first fruits is so that we can declare who God is that he continues to be number one in our lives. Again, bringing first fruits back to God, it's not about God. God doesn't need your first fruit. God doesn't need the first uh, uh, harvesting or, or the livestock. God doesn't need those animals, but you do. I do. We do as a way to acknowledge, a way to declare that God is first in our lives. And so I just thought, I think there's three declarations here when we practice this idea, even today, of first fruit. So when we, in our own lives, uh, bring God our first and our best, we are declaring, first of all, that God loves first. God loves first. That's who he is. You remember back in the story of Abraham, Abraham wasn't out on a hill praying to God, just, you know, loving God. No, he was worshiping other gods. He wasn't even looking for God. And what the scripture tells us is God came to Abraham because he loved Abraham. Or we look at the story of Moses. God loved Moses. God loved the Israelites so much that he, he used Moses and his power to rescue them. This is who God is that God loves first. John 3.16, we, we were told that, you know, for God so loved the world that he became his only son. God does not wait for any of us to first love him. He comes to us first. And so when we practice first fruits of returning to God, what we're saying is, I didn't love God first. He loved me first. 
And I think that's a really important theological and, and practical way of just living our lives. That God loves us and he loves first. Secondly, uh, the God where we, we can declare that God went first. So God not only loves first, but that God went first. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 5. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So not only does God love first, but God also took action by going to the cross for us first. And this is one of the beautiful things, I think, about who God is, his character, his nature, and his essence, that he loves first, not that we love him, and he acts first. While we are still sinners, while we are still broken, God says, you know what? Even though they're not following me, even though they don't love me, I am still willing to give my life for these people on a cross. And so it's a way for us to declare when we practice first fruits, God loves first and God went first to the cross. And number three, when we practice first fruits in our own lives, what we're declaring is that God is first. He's just first in our lives. It's that declaration. God's first. He's number one. See, I could ask you all to get out a piece of paper this morning and say, all right, one through 10, give me your priorities. Boom, go. And we, we could all just write, you know, what our top priorities are on that piece of paper. And what we're saying when we practice first fruits in our lives is that God is number one. He's number one. Remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, Jim Pitzer preached a sermon uh, on uh, idols? And over and over, I mean, what are the first two commandments? You shall have no other gods before me, right? God doesn't want to be number two in your life. He certainly doesn't want to be number five. God says, I want to be number one in your life because I am making you number one in his life. And so God says, this is, so when we practice first fruits, it's an opportunity for us just to declare, God's number one in my life. God does not do leftovers. And one of the things I love about our congregation that we focus on discipleship. If you've been at faith any amount of time, you know that that's who we are. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. We're not just Christians in name. We believe that our lives, that we're going to put a stake in the ground and we are going to be followers of Jesus. And that means that we, we've made a commitment. And those of you who are partners of Faith Lutheran Church, you signed a covenant document saying, I'm going to strive to make Jesus number one in my life. We're going to say that this is, he's going to be the highest priority in my life in all that we have got going on in our lives. This is who we're going to trust. His name is Jesus. And so when we practice first fruits over and over and over, we are putting our faith into action. We are trusting in Jesus and we are making Jesus a priority in our lives. And this is why we practice. And now I'm teaching on first fruits and why I think it's so important for us. So I just want to flip the, the, the script a little bit and just kind of kick around this idea of what, what happens when we don't uh, practice first fruits? What if we say, yeah, I'm going to give uh, or return uh, or give back to God uh, through the life of the church? What if we don't practice that? I mean, how much are we growing in our faith? What if we don't make returning to God through the ministries of the church 
our number one priority and practice that. I mean, how much faith does that require? You get a paycheck or, you know, whatever, and, you know, sometime during the month you just decide, oh, I'll just, you know, you know I'll, I'll write a check to the church or I'll give uh, to, to, to church online or something like that. How much faith does that require of you? You've already paid your mortgage, your food, your internet, all that stuff. I'm going to return to the Lord through the ministries of the church, my offering. doesn't require much faith, does it? And it's certainly not declaring that God is number one in our lives. And so again, I just want to lift up this idea of how important this is because sometimes I think we don't pay enough attention to it. And I think when we don't practice first fruits, we're really trusting in ourselves if we're honest. And I know church is no place to be honest, but I thought I would just say it anyways. Okay. I want to just get real practical in terms of what does it mean to practice first fruits? And in just a very practical way, how do we do this as a congregation? How do each one of us do this? And again, I'm not talking about dollar amounts or tithing or any of that stuff. That's going to come later on down the road. We'll, we'll, I'll come back to this because, again, I've been uh, negligent in my role as, as your pastor here. Just talking about first fruits. How do we do this in a practical way? Number one, uh, it's kind of a two-step way. Plan your offering and offer what you planned. Plan your offering and offer what you plan. Step, step one is just plan your offering well in advance, even before you show up uh, to uh, whatever the date it is. Plan your offering. Decide in advance of how much uh, you are going to give uh, and make that commitment because uh, when you do that, what you're saying is you're committed. And here at Faith Lutheran Church, it was November 12th. Uh, last year. We, uh, we all uh, had an opportunity to fill out pledge cards and, uh, t and uh, t to bring them right here in this place. And we set them in a basket, right? And it was an opportunity for us to just say, this is what, you know, it's November 12th, but for 2024, six, seven weeks in advance, even before the new year begins, I'm going to make a declaration that God is first in my life that God loves first, that God went first, and he is first. This is why we do the pledge cards. We don't do these pledge cards to build a budget for the church. This is not for the church. This is, these are not for the church. These are for you, and these are for me. Because this was an opportunity for my wife and I to sit down, to have a conversation, and just say, hey, how, are, are we committed to the church? And how much are we committed to the church long before we get to 2024? And it was just a great opportunity to have the conversation and to pray about and to make that declaration. This is a tool for you. And I know many of you filled out this tool. You used this tool. About 40 families uh, filled out pledge cards. And in that declaration, I don't know how it worked for you, bringing those pledge cards. But for me and my wife, it was just this idea of we're going to bring our first and our best. We have a pretty good idea of what our family income is going to be in 2024. So we're just going to declare it long in advance. And for us, it was a spiritual exercise uh, to fill out the pledge cards and then to bring them uh, to church uh, on, that, on that day. And then the second thing, um, we uh, uh, do is, is we bring it. Right? And so not only do we fill out the pledge cards, but from a, a, a week to week or a month to month or to a year to year, 
then you do it. So first you make your plan, uh, and, and then you live into your plan, right? And I know everybody's got kind of a different income stream and uh, different ways of when you receive income and all that good stuff. So I'll just share with you how it works for me and my wife uh, as we practice first fruits. So we filled out the pledge card, we declared it, and then how we've done it since then is uh, beginning in January, uh, the very first thing that we do uh, when it comes to money is, is we... We, we, well, we don't write a check. We pay online or we, give, we return online uh, back to, to, to God through the ministries of the church. So maybe you guys know this. Maybe you don't. You all uh, pay me uh, twice a month on the 1st and the 15th. And I've got right in my phone on my calendar uh, tithe, 1st and the 15th. And so, in fact, when I wake up on the 1st and the 15th, the very first thing I do as part of my morning devotions, even before I've read the Bible, even before I've prayed, I get out my phone and, and we return to God. We bring to God the tithe that we have already made a commitment to. And so it's just super easy. I mean, this whole idea of first fruits, I think it's one of the easiest things all of us can do is we just do it right away before we do anything else. Long before we pay the mortgage, before we go grocery shopping, uh, before we pay internet fees, before we put gas in the car, we don't pay a penny for anything in our lives until we have returned to God what fully belongs to him. And it's just our way of saying, God, it's all yours. You loved first, you went first, and we are committed to making you number one in our lives. That's how we do it. Now, you guys have to decide how you want to do it in your lives. And again, I'm not talking about how much you give, so maybe you give uh, 10 cents a week uh, or, or a month to, to you know, return to God. That's fine. I'm not talking about the dollar amount. What I'm talking about is when you give it. And I think that is what's so important. And this is why in the book of Leviticus, over and over and over, God is telling Moses, uh, he's telling the Israelites through Moses, this is how it works. When you do this, you are making a declaration that I am number one in your life. I think when we do that, again, folks, this is not about getting something from you, but this is really something for you. God invites us to practice first fruits so that we can enjoy peace in our lives. That we can experience that joy in our lives of returning to him, just acknowledging, God, this is all yours. And I got to tell you, since my wife and I started practicing this many years ago, there's just been incredible freedom. We just don't feel like it's ours. It's just not ours. We're just returning to him and acknowledging, God, you love first. You went first. And we're going to try really hard to make you first in our lives. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, that you are a God who doesn't want anything from us. That you want something for us. The God, you want for us to be, first of all, in relationship with you. You want us, God, through that relationship to experience joy, and peace, and freedom. But God, so often we're hanging on. We're hanging on tight. And, and God, too often we give you our leftovers. So Lord, I pray that um, however this message has been received this morning, 
that your Holy Spirit might move in each one of our lives. And that, Lord, you truly help us to see you have so much for us. And so, Lord, help us to let go and to return to you. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.